Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics unlimited mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me snicking along on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And while today is, of course, an X-Men X Wednesday, it's a little bit of a different kind of X-Men X Wednesday, where we're going to be taking a look at the sort of bigger picture of Marvel's unlimited banner for the X-Men, stretching all the way back to 1993, as well as taking a look at some of the modern stories. We're going to kick things off with a discussion of Jason Liu's X-Men Unlimited Infinity comic number 21 and 27, the first two parts of his downtime arc, as well as taking a look at both latitude and longitude. That's X-Men Unlimited 1 through 4 and 22 through 25 by Jonathan Hickman and Declan Shavley, as well as a history of X-Men Unlimited and sort of the art of the X-Men backup story in general. But to kick things off, I'm going to be talking about Downtime by Jason Liu, and to do that, I've brought in some amazing help. Jonah is here with me to talk about this amazing two-part story. Hey everybody, it's Jonah. If you want to follow me along where I'm on a jet ski complaining that I'm going to throw my best friend's clone into a bunch of sea creatures, you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. You know, and I'm really glad that we survived this experience because I have found the Unlimited line really enjoyable. It's something we've talked about a lot on the show lately, but this particular two-part story has been really a fascinating read in a lot of ways for me. If for no other reason, I'm shocked by the way they're choosing to break it up. Now, I liked part one a lot, and so when it said tune in to issue 27 for part two, I was pretty fucking thrown off. But Jonah, I think for you, part of it also had to be adjusting to these characters. I don't think you have too much experience with Jamie, Layla, or Guido. No, my majority of my experience with Jamie is his Muir Island exploits, but more importantly it's his first appearance ever over in Fantastic Four where he was literally asking for help and Thing was like, oh I gotta smash him, he's on the rails, instead of like asking, hey buddy, you seem lost and scared, do you need help? You know what? I just told a falsehood on this, because I did cover Jamie over in X-Corps, where he is the team's main researcher and scientist, because there's so many of him, but every Everybody else I'm really unfamiliar with. You definitely covered Guido in the upcoming X-Men Unlimited coverage that's going to run later this episode. I did do that as well. Guido, he's there. It that's more so much more of Logan's story than a, as opposed to Guido just kind of showing up and being the muscle. I definitely agree. I'm a big Guido fan, and I'm a, yeah. I actually kind of feel sometimes really bad saying his name. Like I feel like there's got to be a better way to Mr. Carousella or something. I don't know, but I really love the character. I'm a big fan of you know sort of hyper muscle like as a aesthetic choice. You know, obviously the Guido is clearly non human proportion 
proportions, but that is something that I do go to my comic books for sort of bigger than life people. Now, one of the characters in here who just doesn't get enough love, and I certainly am sad about how little she appears, but that's kind of in general, is Layla Miller. I'm a big Layla Miller fan, stretching back to her time in, well, I guess it would have to be her time in X Factor, because she doesn't have a whole lot of experience outside of it. She has had just over a hundred appearances at this point, and her appearances paint together a really complex character. She is, at this point, maybe best known for being married to Jamie Madrox, but the reality is, when she was first introduced in House of M number three, she was a young girl with an extreme amount of knowledge that was set to help bring the Marvel Universe out of the House of M. She joined up with X-Factor Investigations, which was sort of unusual because it felt like she was being put into a second tier book as a big major character and her narrative unfolded very uniquely where over time even though we had been under the impression that her power was she just knows things it's actually revealed that her power is she has a reanimating touch allowing her to raise the dead but it does not bring their souls back with them and that in the future she downloaded all of her adult knowledge into herself as a child so she seems very up very <laughs> very prescient she's also got some magical training through Doctor Doom she's got some weird relationships it's also really disappointing that she last appears in November of 2013's X Factor 262 she then appears in the B story for Uncanny X-Men number 11 in April of 2019 since then she has appeared in Uncanny X-Men number 17 in July of 2019 and two issues of X-Core in 2021. Layla Miller is this big deal character who was supposed to be a major player in the Marvel Universe and for me has really held a massive spot in my heart. I know she wasn't what everyone wanted her to be but I love her personality a lot and I was really sad to see her kind of get a little less than what felt like appropriate page time here. She's appeared so little. She needs a little bit more dialogue than just being Jamie's baby mama because I don't think you would have gotten that she was at one point quite seriously the most important person in the Marvel Universe from her little appearance here yeah no you don't you don't get that from here <laughs> no you really don't and like don't get me wrong we're 16 years bloom off the rose there is no chance that you know when she was introduced as a young Dakota Fanning they knew that she would marry Jamie Madrox within five years now you know she was aged artificially so it's not like as an actual 410 child she married Jamie Madrox but I do feel like it's worth saying that in a week where we're going to be talking about women of Marvel we should at least be talking a little bit about Layla Miller who just didn't get a fucking chance but I want to talk about why I loved this two-part story and why Jonah you were the first person I thought to have cover this with me I talked about number 21 several weeks back in an episode of X that's XI4P 294 for those of you playing at home now Jonah you're always clamoring for more slice of life this was as slicey of lifey as you can get this was pie and cake and cobbler 
Cobbler, how do you feel about the X-Men taking this sort of what's happening off-screen approach to giving you a slice-of-life story, especially when it involves predominantly characters that you have no relationship with? While it wasn't my favorite title ever, I did think that X-Core had some really interesting elements and really interesting players that I wish were just utilized in a different way. It was a really fascinating take and idea behind this company that was set up way back early in the Hoxpox era where Jonathan Hickman set up that, that Krakoa was setting up these companies, these media companies, like all these different things and choosing one of them, I found is a fascinating idea for storytelling. So having this story take place essentially during this time, even though we're not covering, we're, there's no more coverage of what's going on in the X-Corp with Warren and Monet, it's still a well-needed breath of fresh air to see these characters be like, okay, they're trying to take a break and they're trying to go on vacation but they can't because there's these bunch of fish trying to eat them and we're like oh no this is like every shark movie ever so that's essentially what these issues are is that the x-men's version of a shark movie instead of shark movie it's actually piranha which is not i not a good film i'm so sorry to the creative team for piranhas one through 47 if that's how many there are right now but it's not <laughs> it's not good these issues have some of my favorite things that i do get to enjoy about it i like seeing jamie get to you know actually talk to his wife and spend time with his child. He's kind of the working man right now where he's spending so much time at the office that he's not really going to spend so much time with his wife and son. And it is nice that he's getting this moment and it's like he actually does get to spend time with his child and he's, you know, trying to be as good of a father as he can be. But what I really loved about this is talking about the relationship between Guido and Jamie. I am a huge proponent and often advocate for straight male characters being emotionally vulnerable with one another and showing each other love that's platonic and it not being made as a joke that neither one of them has to feel weird about expressing that affection or love. I love to see more of that in media and I challenge writers and creators across all different spectrums to implore more of that to show that, you know, men can love one another in a platonic way and it's not weird and you also don't have to do it in this hyper-masculine, violent atmosphere of the buddy cop genre. As much as there are things I can enjoy about it, no, show me a drama. Show me the slice of life where it's just two guys who really enjoy one another. They don't have to compete and they don't have to, you know, be just totally masculine testosterone spewing out every moment, even though I'm pretty sure Guido sweats testosterone. Finding out that this was a little bit less of Jamie and the rest of x taking a vacation, but now we're delving into Jamie and Guido's relationship and them talking about that and what that means for them since they've really changed their roles in each other's lives. They both refer to each other as their best friends, yet we haven't seen any interaction from either of them this entire Krakoan era that I'm really appreciative that we get a writer who's like, I'm going to tackle this story. I'm really fascinated by people's perception, perhaps, of Strong Guy. I do find him at seven foot tall and 750 pounds and a bald dude. Like, you know, I've made some pretty clear, you know, bodybuilder goals on this show and and it is specific that Guido's powers deform him. And if he does not exert his kinetic energy that he's metabolized, it can actually like deform him further. Like he can continue to grow out of control if he does not purposefully release the energy channeled into him. And he's first introduced in 
New Mutants 29 back in July of 1985, where he is connected to uh, pop sensation Lila Cheney. And he actually doesn't appear quite as often as you might think. He shows back up in a book called Spellbound, written by Louise Simonson, with pencils by Terry Shoemaker, inks by Carl Potts, colors by Christy Scheel, and letters by Joe Rosen. And this features a character named the Spellbinder. This issue is a bunch of New Mutants guest star, including Guido. This is sort of an unusual title. Spellbound was not necessarily a big hit for Marvel. It actually represents Strong Guy's second ever appearance and only appearance for five years. After July 1985's New Mutants number 29, Guido doesn't reappear until March of 1990's Uncanny X-Men 259. He would appear in back-to-back issues 259 and 260 before taking a sabbatical. He would appear pretty frequently from 270 to 280 before joining X-Factor with number 70. At this point, the character would take on a pretty significant popularity thanks to being on such a high-profile team, but his attachment to X-Factor would in some ways kind of become a a hindrance, and he would be very much built into that era of characters unmistakably for a very long time. So I do get not having uh, too much relationship with Guido, and I loved your discussion of platonic friendships. Platonic male friendships are something that the X-Men is foundationally built on. What's funny is kind of like the ultimate platonic friendship in X-Men is kind of a romantic one now with Wolverine and Cyclops. So getting a chance to focus on a different set of characters is terrific. Now, how do you feel beyond the fact that I do agree with you, monster movie, piranhas, totally with you. How do you feel about the incorporation of Monster Island? I personally, when we left issue one and you know we had Trinary and Angel and Monet as like background characters in issue one or issue 21 as it were, I thought we were maybe in for a little bit more of like a, a team up situation with like a, a team. But finding ourselves trapped on Monster Island, just Jamie and Guido, definitely reminded me that one of the things that X-Men Unlimited is for is exploring other parts of the X-Men experience. I'm immersed enough in the monster verse. I only question the name of this as Monster Island as well as where this plays in the larger monster role because there's so many different things involving monsters that I don't quite understand how exactly this fits in. You have, you know, currently Deadpool is king of Staten Island and he's also the king of monsters where monsters have basically just are living on Staten Island, which is not a metaphor for anything. Well, I just want to point out, you are from Staten Island and went to school in Staten Island. And I feel like if anybody gets to say that Staten Island is run amok with monsters, it is our our own king of Staten Island. Yeah. I tr- Oh, I try. <laughs> Regardless of that, it's just the naming thing. When you name something a very specific thing, it's going to add connotations that you might not fully intend. So naming this Monster Island, okay, how do these monsters relate to the monsters that are currently currently on Staten Island. How do these monsters relate to that of those who live in the sewers of Manhattan? Like, There's a lot of questions this makes me bring up. I bring her up every time. Is Elsa Bloodstone aware of this island? Does she hunt on this island? And all of them don't actually really matter because I don't think the monster island is the point of these issues. I, I don't think anybody was clamoring of like, we really need like a competing island 
and it's got to be filled with monsters. I think this was more just the vehicle to encase the Guido Jamie story, which I think is meant to be the more of the highlight and focus, even though it might not be exactly what you got from the first issue. There is also something to be said about the idea of like low-key competing monster island. Krakoa was like a monster and it even had like Son of Krakoa, which was adorable and stuff. I love him. And this really could just be like a touchback to the days of Krakoa being like that as well. So I do like your notion of it being a potentially competing monster island. I also think there is something to be said about Jamie discussing kind of the duality of the many men he needs to be. Guido being like, yeah, but I don't have all your attention. And Jamie being like, yeah, but I don't mean this shitty. You never did. You're idealizing and romanticizing a time in our lives where you believed you had all of my attention because those are the good old days now. And I appreciate that, but I need to be allowed to be a multifaceted person with my own experiences and not necessarily be beholden to your definition of who I am. And I think that's a lot of us. And hearing Jamie get to talk about that to Guido, I thought was a very humanizing experience. It's a great examination of friendships, especially as you grow older and your priorities in life changes. Your roles with your friendship and the people that you are close with can change. And that often, I think, does happen. Hey, like I am somebody who's multifaceted and I have different things and different priorities and different avenues in my life that I'm currently crossing and going down. And I apologize. Maybe I haven't visited your street as often as we would have liked, but that's just the nature of growing up. And there are times where you don't see your best friend for a while and you don't hang out and you don't get to talk. What I loved about this is that not only Jamie explaining that in a way that feels plausible and healthy, I also appreciate Guido bringing it up and talking about what he was upset over. I appreciate that he wasn't kind of like, you know, grumbling and holding it all in. He felt comfortable enough to express those emotions of, hey, I just feel like I haven't seen you in a long time and we call we used to call each other best friends. What happened? The first issue of this story came out February 7th. The second issue of this story came out March 21st. And the next issue is six weeks away. However, Jonah, is there anything you're hoping to see in that next issue six weeks from now? What's really funny is you bringing this up is that they're treating this like a regular title. It's coming out monthly. This isn't a weekly story that's being finished up within three weeks as other unlimited titles or cross. That's a great fucking thing. Anything, but these are com- th- this story is coming out monthly. This is just basically, we're pretending this is another title. And I find that so fascinating that they're choosing this delivery method of a monthly release for this specific story as opposed to other X-Men Unlimited Infinity Comics stories which are getting their completion weekly. I hope to see a little bit of monster punching. I think that's always fun. More because we got a lot of that in two and it's kind of funny that Guido was like huh are they afraid of me or do they think I'm family? And I something about Guido makes me think he would love the Fast and Furious films. So <laughs> I think he would really enjoy them so him saying that just made me giggle. But what I'm hoping... That Vin Diesel he handsome. Ha <laughs> ha. He's not the thing. I'm pretty sure he speaks in full sentences. Well, you know what? I kind of think that Jamie stretches himself too thin, like Mr. Fantastic and Thing and Guido have a lot in common. And Layla Miller can be the invisible girl because no one ever draws her. Well, then who's Johnny in this scenario? Another Jamie? Warren. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Perfectly fine. Well, from X-Men Unlimited, Infinity Comics number 21 and 27 to two other kind of disconnected but direct 
directly related stories from X-Men Unlimited. We're going to be taking a look at X-Men Unlimited numbers 1 through 4 and 22 through 25 as part of the Latitude Longitude two-part story arc. I loved editing this coverage. The team did such an incredible job discussing this story, and they really led to the coverage that follows it, where I break down the history of X-Men Unlimited comics and backup stories in the X-Men in general, covering everything from Marvel Comics Presents to X-Men Classic and everything in between. So we hope you guys enjoy this next segment, and if you guys like what you hear, don't forget you probably want to give us a follow over on Twitter at X's for Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and many aim-perpetrated kidnappings week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm TK, and you can find me getting my old friends out of stasis pods on Twitter and Instagram at xnatexgrayx. Hi, I'm Steven. You can find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. Check it out. I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me on Twitter at Asleep at the Wheel, W-E-I-L, and at AsleepTheWheel.com. And from now until November 8th, as the progressive Democrat running for U.S. Senate in the state of Florida, you can find me across social media at Wheel, the number four U.S. Senate, and at joshwheel.org. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at peakjonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience, just like the plethora of mutants that were saved these issues. And if you really would love to see me smashing things like Guido, I don't know, just ask me and I'll probably do it. (laughs) (laughs) Which means we must be talking about the X-Men Unlimited Infinity comic, numbers one through four, arc titled Latitude, story by Jonathan Hickman, all the art by Declan Shalvey, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. And we're also going to put that in contrast with the arc Longitude, which is issues number 22 through 25, where basically everything is done by Declan Shalvey with letters by Joe Sabino. What a interesting thing to return back to some 20 odd issues later after this original Hickman storyline that I think we all kind of thought maybe was just sort of a one-off fun little Wolverine story, but appears to be growing into something a lot bigger and more interesting. Yes, I'm actually surprised with at least issues one through four being out for a while at this point. I'm kind of shocked that it wasn't like mentioned in the X-Men issues where they fought MODOK, but in a really nice tie-in as well as to promote it as to help and get people to kind of be excited and be like, hey, they've already dealt with something that MODOK's doing, stealing mutants. Go check it out in X-Men Unlimited. And it's like, huh, MODOK is just fucking around with the mutants in two separate scenarios and they're just completely separate. I miss editor's notes. Yeah, it's funny on Krakoa where there does seem to be so much more kind of writerly weaving together of certain elements. The fact that a lot of times we don't see that come together on the page with references in editor's notes or in other ways that sort of indicate to a reader. And especially when it comes to the Unlimited and Infinity comics, which, you know, you can't guarantee that everybody's necessarily reading. This would be a really good place to be like, hey, if you are not subscribed to Unlimited and you want some really good extra story have we got news for you yeah i definitely think that was uh that would have been a a really great opportunity to promote the x-men unlimited line and it was uh was definitely a missed opportunity so for someone like me who has not been reading
being digital. And it's nothing against the format. I do think that it needs to be a strong part of the future of the industry. It's just that for the last two years, since I've transitioned to working from home and with a political campaign, I'm on multiple screens for 12, 15 plus hours a day. And when I stop and break to read, I don't want to be looking at a screen. I'm at a place in my life where I want to be off screen if possible for any of my leisure. And so I have not been reading these. I've been waiting for the inevitable print collection. So I'm a little glad that knowing that the print collections are coming up, they didn't kind of make me feel like I was missing something or force this into the main print line before that. Now, they could have just as easily have released the first issues in print already. But since they had and I was happy, I did, you know, kind of break line and and read digital for this and get caught up. And I'm glad I did. It's having not read one through four before we started here, going into it, I was expecting kind of a letdown, like, okay, I'm going to read the first half, which is Hickman and Hickman is awesome. (laughs) And then I'm going to get like the non Hickman follow up and like, uh, but man, this this is all Declan Shelby. And so if I had to after reading the first half, if I had to only keep one of the two, like very few are the instances where I would dump Hickman, but part two had to be Shelby. What he did here, both artistically and in the design of this comic for the sequential storytelling was fantastic. I was loving this all the way through. Yeah, Josh, I really agree. I had been reading these. I'm pretty much fully digital now, but there's a part of me that's very reluctant because I am a little older and I've spent so much of my life reading paper comics that just making the transition was tough for me. With the move to Krakoa, it kind of felt like a good time to rethink how I was reading the comics as well. And yeah, the Marvel Unlimited like app and subscription service being kind of a good value proposition. I've started to get more into it. And so with this book coming out, I really tried to make an effort to be on it the whole time and really leave my mind open for the format. I personally was a little disappointed when this first came out only because it was like yet again, another Wolverine story, but it's a good one. And we'll talk about that more, but really now all these issues later returning to it with Declan Shelby back on the art, but then also writing the story as well. It was really interesting to compare and contrast these and sort of start to wonder how much input he might have had in the first four stories, because the return to this story is really quite seamless. And I was really trying to like look at and and pick apart things like Logan's voice and see if, you know, these two people were writing them drastically different or if the story beats were really hitting different or, you know, and this doesn't have to be negative, but if with Shelby on control of the entire thing, if the sort of flow of the story seemed any different in the second four issues, but it all really is quite seamless. It fits very well. And so one of the questions I would sort of wonder to myself is like, how much input did he have in the original story and how much input did Hickman have? And also just, you know, I'd be so, I'd love to hear from him at some point about like what it takes to sort of keep things so cohesive as you take on the additional responsibility of writing a story. I really, really enjoyed the first part of the story a lot. And I was, like you said, you were trying to pick apart things to see, you know, who wrote what differently. I read one through four came out and then I read, well, maybe a little bit after. And then I read this and I didn't even realize they were not by the same person because I forgot since it was so long ago that Hickman wrote the original story. So I think that is a good thing. You know, it's, it really did seem super seamless. And I am really impressed with the flow of the story. Now, I'm really curious. There is a paper version of this. It's coming out in like a month or so. It's coming out. That's really interesting to me. It's been solicited. 
did. I, I have it on order, but I had gotcha. And that's, but that's just for one through four, it. right? I don't think longitude has. The- no, 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 no. It's not the whole thing. It is. Yeah. It's either one through four or one through four and a little more than that. I ask because I'm just not entirely certain how that's going to work in print, unless it's like a different kind of flipbook. Only because- oh, yeah, I have lots of questions about yeah. the paper yeah. and the fold out and what you do here because the design is yeah, it, it yeah. is clearly designed with digital in mind. I love the way that the story flows in that direction. It's It looks so cool and you know what? I will say this. I also prefer my comics to be pretty much in paper because I like the feeling of it in my hand and I just like being able to flip back the page myself. I actually do like, you know, a switch up every so often. This was, this was really nice. It's nice for digital artists to be able to, you know, express their art in a different way every so often and I, I really like that this kind of, this these stories like break the mold on that at least for Marvel. Because of how strong of a component of the storytelling the design of this is, the, the vertical flow design, I, it really makes me wonder if the original first four, Latitudes was done in the old-fashioned Marvel style, where, you know, Hickman essentially gave him, like, a plot synopsis, and then Shelby drew it all out and did the visual storytelling, and then the dialogue was added in later. It really does feel like that. It really does. And that's actually, oh gosh, Uh, That actually kind of gives me a little bit more appreciation for the first story because, and for the second story, for for two different reasons. Because if that's how it went, then he, you know, he was testing it out and he was having fun with it, which I, I think it was a success. And then in this story, it feels like he perfect, like he definitely perfected it. Yeah, there's, and and I mean, and that's how you would want it. I mean, it because it it also raises the appreciation of this that as we get some of the first, you know, really long visual elements elements in like issues one and two or part one and two or however we're phrasing this it's impressive but then you know he reaches greater height he, he does even more like i'm looking back at the cannonball moment in i think it issue 24 or 25 now and like that might be the best in terms of like what he did with the visual storytelling and the whole thing agreed cannonball was my favorite part and so the fact that it gets better, like, it, it allows you to continue to, it's like like getting a stronger hit the next time where, you know, you, <laughs> and it's great. It's delightful. And yeah, I would feel so bad for Declan Shelby if like this was like hyper scripted, like if Hickman had wrote all of this out and, you know, he got this script, like I've got to what? But what he did here is amazing. So when it comes to this issue, I was really fascinated with this story. And then I was actually... When it first came out, I was like, oh, damn, is this going to be like a weekly thing? Like, this is what Hickman's going to work on? And then we got four issues. And then Hickman said, I have other things to do. (laughs) And I said, okay. So then we were left with this story that was just kind of hanging in the air. And there were, I remember there was a lot of speculation on who is this mysterious mutant? Who is this mutant that they couldn't save just yet? Because we saved Nightcrawler and then we saved Jono, two of my favorites. And I was like, ooh, bangers. Let's see if I get a third banger. And then it's Paige. And Paige is fine. That's not me trying to throw shade at Paige. But I was about to wonder. She's just fine. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like kind of horrified at those words. <laughs> so, um, you and I are going to have to have a talk after this. <laughs> listen, Paige is not my favorite go three, and that's okay. okay. I will say this as long as she's wearing yellow, she's not mine either. Oh, Lord. Um, <laughs> but I remember that was somebody that a lot of people talked about and speculated being like, this is the missing mutant. And then. It was actually her, but not really. It's this other mutant who we've never met before. And part of me is like, huh, that's an interesting place to take this. Because now we have a, another mutant, 
willing to betray Krakoa. And I thought that was an interesting part of the story that I wasn't expecting it to go there. One thing I really enjoyed about reading this is that even though it was two separate writers, a lot of the story feels very cohesive and reads as if it was written as a singular entity. So I am appreciative of both storytellers and contributors creating this narrative that feels cohesive and like, okay, it picks up where it left off logically. Something that you did talk about before, TK, is I do wonder as well, was this a much larger collaborative effort than we know about? Was this something that like Jonathan Hickman wrote out, he had an idea for it, realized he had other things to work on, and gave it away, and he was like, okay, I'll pick it up, but I'm going to do my own little twists and stuff. And I wonder how much were each individual's ideas versus collaborative ideas and thinking? Because was this originally what Hickman had in mind when he was telling the story, or where is this supposed to go somewhere else? Interesting. So the thing is, historically, he did something like this with Avengers as well. So if you remember when Hickman's Avengers line had multiple books and was the biggest thing, after Infinity, when they were doing, Marvel was doing a big launch of number ones again, they launched Avengers World, another Hickman Avengers book, and he had his name all over it to sell the shit out of it. And he really only like co-wrote the first couple issues, and then it wound up being Nick Spencer's book that was actually a lot of fun, and it bounced around and had all sorts of different like Avengers teams from all different parts of the world. And the the most fun thing was that it brought into continuity for like half a second the kids from the Marvel animated next Avengers movie that my boys love. Oh and yeah, I've I remember so that. many times. But it was not a Hickman thing. It was Hickman like putting his name and like sitting at the table for like Arc One to help launch it and get sales and being a team player. And so that that happened again with X Men Unlimited. Very much feels like I you know yeah like okay I'll sit at the table and you know I'll help you launch this because my name sells. Yeah, and it's an interesting interplay here because you know on the one hand Hickman doesn't need to sell anything here. You know, this is part of the subscription service. It's kind of bonus content, essentially. Putting his name on it gives a higher profile to the bonus content. But at the same time, there's this very real feeling that they're probably not going to give you their best stuff here. So this is a pretty by the numbers, you know, Wolverine infiltrates, does his thing. He's the best at what he does story with some fantastic embellishments and some very very good references to characters that for nostalgia's sake, you'd be happy to see in here. And again, just give you that feeling of like, I'm really glad that I have this subscription so that I could read this so that I could finally see Paige, who for me has been kind of missing from the Krakoan activity. So that was, you know, something I was very happy about. But at the same time, I'm constantly aware of the fact that this story might not be where I'm looking to see the wheels of Krakoa really turning. But at the same time, some of the ideas like this idea that not every mutant is for Krakoa. Some of them are going to be not just distant, but sort of outright against it. That's a really important idea to the entire system that we're seeing here. And so to see it play out in this kind of small corner where not everybody is really going to get that, it feels like as a fan, getting really invested into this is sort of worthwhile for me. I really think there's a lot of storytelling you can do with people who 
who aren't on board with Krakoa, with uh, mutants that don't want to be there, that want to actively go against and fight it because they were mistreated or whatever. I think we have a lot of that going on, a lot of that storytelling that was being laid out for us in S.W.O.R.D. with Abigail Brand deciding that, nah, the mutants don't even know my real actual name and my allegiance doesn't really go to Krakoa. It goes to the kind of the highest bidder right now. And it's something that I really enjoy for their characterization because I think that having mutant antagonists that actively go against Krakoa, I think are really great for what Krakoa represents and stands for. I think there's a lot of really great depth of storytelling that can come from that. I mean, gay Republicans exist. <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> Only after midnight on Grinder. <laughs> <laughs> Which I feel like that's what Moira feels like to me. Yes. Whereas whoever this character is feels more like somebody who's just like, oh, I'm fiscally conservative. You know, yeah. she's not... <laughs> <laughs> oh, she's a libertarian. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I think it's also interesting that she brings up Wolverine from the future and Wade, which might start to put this in conversation with the upcoming Wolverine book. So That's what I was going to say, this very much felt like a prequel or like a nod to like, hey, find out more in, you know, Wolverine number, whatever number we're at in April. Yeah, I forget if Wolverine is relaunching or not. I think it keeps going. I but think I so. I, I would assume it's just going to keep going. I mean, he's, he's pretty much always guaranteed to have a book I think because he he does sell and a lot of people truly love him you know for good reason the other thing is that if you're Marvel like putting Deadpool on the cover of a book sells almost the same oh as yeah absolutely putting number one on the cover of a book so why yeah absolutely with and lose people in the resolicit and of course we just got off of a Wade storyline in Infinity prior to this so his presence I think is really starting to be felt in and around Krakoa and it's just a little reference here but I think it's something to possibly be looking forward to in Wolverine. And again, it would bring us back to another really big name, big creator in the X line, having ties to this book and being important to the stories that it's connected to. Maybe even being like for whatever the next arc of this is going to be, should it return in Infinity? Like if it were Ben Percy and Declan Shelby doing the the third arc in this, I could see that being like a we get the big creators to come to this and give us some additional plot and then Shalvi comes in and writes the whole thing does all the art knocks it out of the park it's a very interesting format and something that I so far has been really compelling so I would be curious to see if that's where they go with it. Jonah you mentioned the character who betrayed Krakoa I actually have her written down I don't know if anybody had this vibe from her either but I have her written down in my notes under the nickname of alternate future 66 16 Blink's daughter. Yes, that is exactly what I thought. Because the javelin. The javelin was like so like Blink to me. It looks like her crystal javelins and her hair too was very Blink uh, from 616, I felt. And on top of that, with all of the Gen X references, and by all right. of them, I mean two. Thank you. <laughs> yes, I'm really, well, technically three if you go back to the other part of the story, the first part with uh, Jono. Yeah, we had. Oh, right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. right. So this feels very generation x centric in a weird way i mean which makes me very happy it right really there does with you. maddie in this gave me some negasonic teenage warhead from the deadpool movies vibes yeah i can definitely see that i too. did where did I we did see, see her that. recently did we not just see her making out with a whole bunch of girls yes. in and an X-Men. x-men comic recently sing commented Wow, she's really just making a whole team of girlfriends, isn't she? And Cyclops remarks, well, what are the X-Men but that? 
Cyclops. It's that X-Men issue where uh, Sink is like, I'm going to leave. And oh, Cyclops right. is like, no, you're going to leave when I tell you you can leave. Okay, love you. Bye. <laughs> I took that yep. so much so much more like paternal than, <laughs> than that. But yeah, that's fair. But yes, she definitely has Negasonic Teenage Warhead vibes. Definitely Blink vibes. She's an interesting character. Again, like everything about this, if you just, if they just decided for whatever reason, this was going to be the storyline for an X-Men book or any of the mainline, you know, printed series, this would still be a really quality story. Yes, I absolutely agree. Yeah, the story is there, even though it honestly probably didn't have to be because just the art is so good. But yeah, after you finish it with the art, there is, and, and really only in the second part, really only in longitudes you know where we built something that is more sustainable because the first four were just a rescue mission the first four was just wolverine's gonna stab a lot of beekeepers and we're gonna get mystery reveals of which x-men he saved it's the second part where you know there's some lore and mythos and new concepts and characters and you know intrigue that leaves you wanting more which is interesting because you know if if you had to think ahead of time like one half has hickman working on it and one half doesn't which one's gonna have all of that stuff you'd have guessed a not b but again shelby did such a phenomenal job that you know i I can't rave enough that you know i could sit there just immersed in the art and just with a a big shit-eating grin on my face scrolling up and down to see some of these things unfold again and again and then afterwards i can sit down and think about it and have lots of things for my brain to happily spin through and, and wonder um not to say the least we haven't even talked about yet but now that we know it's Paige, what the fuck were Paige and jono doing together on the peak station i want to know about that i want a whole issue about what they were doing before they got kidnapped by aim because Paige and jono were together on the peak station that's Uh that's important to me is he two time in jubilee up there in space if it's with Paige, i'm well no there's no such thing it we live in an ethically non-monogamous krakoan world now i completely agree also collecting girlfriends what's more x-men than collecting girlfriends truly they all be smooching each other space smooching but no i josh i agree with you insofar as there's so much story potential here even just continuing the basic story is would be fine but the pulling together of elements like what are Paige and Jono doing together on the peak station you know what's what's been going on with characters that we don't necessarily see as much of in the mainline books it's the infinity comic as a repository for stories that overall enhance our understanding of Krakoa. Every time I talk about it, I always say I'm the person that calls for Krakoan slice of life stories. I want more. I need a little balance out for all of the big intrigue and political games happening in the main series. And month to month, week to week, I'm starting to see that a lot of where I'm getting that is in the Infinity comic. And when you take the whole thing as a whole in balance with the print stuff, it is really giving you a lot of that stuff and giving characters that just for whatever reason aren't going to be in mainline books like Paige Guthrie a chance to have some story and for you know fans of Gen X to be like that's where these characters that I love so much were while all this big stuff was happening on Krakoa yeah. so I think about how when we have like these huge like line stopping crossovers like Secret Wars and stuff how you know when there's all of these miniseries coming out 
about in all of these other stories that there's always like the anthology book, right? There's always a couple that are just like random, you know, eight page stories that different teams did that are like you get three or four of them thrown together and then there's like four issues of it. And and I feel like usually there's one of them that's really good filled with all these amazing little gems. And then there's one of them that's just hot garbage and like you don't know which one's which until you've dropped the money. But like, yeah, like this could be if Unlimited is just going to be like all of these things that don't necessarily fit or work or aren't marketable, like, well, you know, like we can't really make the cost of paperback selling a Nature Girl miniseries. Then like, yeah, like give us these give us these spots where we can get the characters that we're missing, like Skin and Paige and Jono, where we can and Nature Girl, you know, where we can get stories of varying length and size because they don't have to be a specific page. You know, they don't have to be adjusted to fit a physical form. They can just be told in whatever size is best for them and released digitally. I like having that. Like you called it a repository. I like having that space where we can access these and get them regularly. I think that's great. So what I find so fascinating about these Infinity Comics, one thing that I do enjoy about them is that they're very easy to read. They, you go through these very quickly. And even if you're not the fastest reader in the world, because they're so little dialogue comparative to more your paperbacks and your trades. And I wonder how that will affect reader experiences when this is printed, because reading it, you know, scrolling through it very quickly is going to be very different than flipping through pages. And I wonder how that transition will affect the reader experience. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a fantastic question on top of the really big moments in both stories where the verticality is important. Some of them, you know, like I, when this series started out, I was a little disappointed right off the get-go because that space shot where it's just a lot of space that you're scrolling through, I always call it the A New Hope Imperial Star Destroyer scene where it just slowly comes onto the page and or onto the screen and shows you like what a large volume of space you're dealing with. You see that so often in Infinity Comics that it does start to get a little tired. So I was bummed when that was the first thing that we started with. But man, so many amazing uses of the scroll and of the verticality. We talked about the cannonball one, which I do think really is iconic. For me, the one that I really loved, well, there's two, but they both are Warlock and like his body just being very long yeah. and connecting. <laughs> and there's a great one where it's the ship going down and Guido reaching towards Warlock and just the sense you get of that velocity was really, really good for me. And so, I mean, props to Shelby for The javelin throw was another one because throwing the javelin down the page as we followed it gave it a sense of movement that is very difficult to create in any sort of sequential art. Really, really well done. Difficult to create. And also this reminds you that why this format is not an alternative to page comics, but supplementary and can give you storytelling options that simply aren't there for panel to panel, page to page. So they're both great for different types of storytelling. And I think back to Jonah's original question, how will this translate is very important. And I'm not sure I quite believe that they can give me a lot more than like, shrug, we did our best, we got it onto a page. Right. There's a Nightwing comic that came out recently as well that's in a similar situation where, you know, people are really wanting them. It's essentially, it's a, I haven't read it yet because I'm waiting for, I have the trade on back order. What I'm told is that like all 22 pages essentially take place at the same time. So as you're like moving through 
through page by page, you're physically moving through the scene that's all happening essentially at once. And artistically, like it's a thing, but like how to like fold and unlike make the paper fold out so you can like fully experience this thing is like, it's just a logistical thing that I've seen a lot of fans clamoring for. Find a way to release this physically where I can like unfold and see all of this the way it would have been like, and you will just have my money all over again. Yeah, I'm so intrigued to see this in paper because we brought up Cannonball earlier and there's that scene where he is traveling through the sky and you have all of those pages dedicated to his literal like stream, like the power signature behind him. His contrail. In this, like it works because it gives you a real sense of just how far he's flying and just how like how strongly he must be descending because of the distance that he traveled and in paper i'm just i'm i'm struggling trying to envision that in my head and you know there are other instances of that you know we see skin grabbing wolverine and his arm is extended through two pages and then in the third page you know he's grabbing him and it gives you an idea of just how far you know skin can stretch his his skin (laughs) i think that's a really good example because that is that's like the basic unit of vertical measurement that i'm looking for because that's not a big like the the cannonball moment is a big long many scroll moment the sync one is just like just to remind you this is a vertical comic watch how far this goes down and if you can find a way to translate a moment like that on page i think that's a good base to start from there are a bunch of these that i like i said it would i will be very surprised if they pull it off in a way that doesn't just feel like we told you we'd publish it in print so here it is feels like when you watch like those tv shows and somebody has like a playboy and then they get to that page and then they turn it vertically and then all the the page just folds just out flops down just flops down like that's what this comic feels like it's gonna be like in page format. yes that's what i need this to be though <laughs> yeah that's what I, I want. that would be really interesting i'm I not agree, sure they'll yeah. do that <laughs> i'm not and I'm, that's the problem I'm not well and it's either. it's kind of the depressing it's the reverse of like what they too often do with digital comics which is to say that like you know they just scan pdfs and throw them online which is not fully taking advantage of the medium like are they essentially just going to turn this into pdfs and print them on paper are they going to do the lazy reproduction from one form of another instead of the creative one that best takes advantage of the previous strength when it came to issues 22 to 25 i don't know why it felt like this but it always felt like oh here's a situation well here's the x-men that you didn't see previously that's gonna help in this situation (laughs) and it kind of felt like there was a swiss like army knife toolbox of like mutants that were going to help with this but it felt like the inclusion of both cannonball and skin felt like we don't know how to actually put them in the issue so here's their hyper specific niche use for this i was like oh i did feel the same way and as much as i loved it because i am just all about skin being in whatever books i can get him in it definitely felt like this like you said it was a swiss army knife this is the tool that he you know flipped out (laughs) for the moment and i would just like to see more beyond that i mean he got a good moment where even some of his his little sass was was shown towards wolverine and i just i want to see more i want to see more of that you know i want to see more of him you know since he's been resurrected you know what else can he do now has he been experimenting is he going to graduate outside of that generation x costume who knows so the thing for me with it was that we had all of these scenes on the 
plane, like with the plane crashing, and it felt like there was no one on the plane except for Greedo and Warlock, and then people just kept yes. showing up who were sitting on the plane. Yeah. And if anything, it made me just like imagine that there's a Krakoan gate on the plane, and that like <laughs> whenever they need someone, they just like yell in like, "Hey, we need Cannonball!" And he like walks through, and now he's on the plane. Like it's very Pokemon. I choose you. I actually had no idea there were other people on the jet until Cannonball came out out of it. Yeah, there's no like, you. You wouldn't know. There's no indication. <laughs> right. I was like, oh, Cannonball's also there, and then the skin thing happened, like Jonah said, and I was like, oh. <laughs> Because you there. you have that moment where they're <laughs> crashing, and when they're crashing, they're taking an inventory of who else is there to make sure everybody's safe, and they don't <laughs> mention where Skin is or check on him or anything. Right. So it's a, it's, yes. <laughs> and Guido literally says he checked the back of the plane, but there's no mention of anyone else <laughs> like before that. So when, like, when I can't tell if him. I love it because it's just a really kind of campy, great moment when you get the reveal that Skin is there or if i'm like you gotta give me a little bit tighter right than that i do think it was meant to be more like that like a yeah. reveal and yeah. i think that this kind of uh storytelling it just makes it a little bit more difficult to to add those kinds of information dropping moments in of who's where you know what i mean so i do accept it but it, it was a little yeah. a little surprising and jarring at the same time there was I, a, i'm not gonna complain there was a similar thing in terms of just wanting power use in the first part when we had Nightcrawler, I'd say probably one of the only things that took me out of the story, like in a bad way, not like the art where I'm like, oh my God, I got to go scroll down and like watch that again, was that like they got Nightcrawler as a teleporter. And it's like, great, now we can teleport yeah, through <laughs> all of these walls into places you've never seen before. Yes, and it's like, that... no, no, no. How many times have I read the, right. the like Nightcrawler exposition of I can't teleport there. I haven't seen it. Like, I'm wait, really we're just going to use that, that as our trick. I'm really glad you said that because it it was the thing that kept making my eye twitch during the first part of the story. I'm not sure if, if I was supposed to take that as he's died, so he's just, uh, like, what is that, 0. 0.028 or whatever percent stronger, and now he doesn't need to see it. Maybe he's like, Hub, he has an internal radar, who knows? But that just kept, like, making my eye freaking twitch. From my understanding, it's Nightcrawler has to be able to visualize where he's going, otherwise he might end up inside a wall and die. So it, it's one of two things. He either fully knew exactly how far he could teleport because of Logan or he was extremely lucky and he had roulette on his side oh my god roulette in this book Nightcrawlers is one of those powers where over time the limitation got boring to writers and there were other ways to introduce conflict into the story. So we just kind of started to give up on that particular... I mean, you see it with Wolverine constantly. Like, there were a lot of limitation on Wolverine's healing factor and now we're at one drop of blood and he's fine. Well, I mean, some would argue that maybe we should go back to that specific limitation. Hey, listen, <laughs> I might be there with you on that, but I'm saying, you know, yeah. for the for the purposes of all of the nitpicking that I will do on any given right. X-Men comic, that one I was like, eh. I mean, I feel like at this point I've seen four or five different stories right. where he stretched his powers beyond what I thought he should be able to. See, that's the thing. Like, I've always hated that limitation. I, I cannot stand it. You're a teleporter. Just just have the internal radar. It's been written into other uh, teleporters, so just, just have it. And, like, it just makes sense for him to be able to do this considering that he is an infiltrator. You know, he is 
you know, a rogue. He's meant to sneak in and out of places without being seen. I am okay with it. It's just, I, I'm so used to the limitation that it kept freaking me out. And I kept like getting so worried he was going to teleport inside of somebody. Because <laughs> I don't think he could ever come back then. <laughs> Emotionally. Clearly, we have the Krakoan resurrection protocols, so. Uh, rogue wasn't in this issue. I really love the format. I think it's fantastic because I love seeing, you know, distance used and played with, uh, perspective, all of that. But I do think that because of the style, um, I would be mad <laughs> waiting every single month for an issue with a lot of blank or ne negative space. So I think it works really well uh, condensed, but I'm not sure I can handle it one at a time. Wait, do these come out weekly or monthly? Weekly. These come out weekly. weekly. Sorry, yeah. weekly. I, I was going to say, yeah. like, there's no way they've been doing this for 27 months. It, it is weekly, yeah. Like, I mean, I take your point in so right. far as, like, even if it's week to week, it's, a, I mean, it is noticeably less than a standard issue of comic books content, which, right. again, is another one of those things where it's like, how are we treating this particular medium and, like, how much can we as readers see it as something that Marvel takes seriously or that we're supposed to view as equally important as the print issue? Yeah, like, I love it. I love that it's a quick read, don't get me wrong, uh, but it does play into the trope of, like, you know, they're silly and small and, you know, like, what are you, what are you really reading? How are you really getting a full story out of this? You know what I mean? So I, I do like reading them condensed uh, once the whole story of each thing is out. Totally. I, I would have screamed if I had to read one at a time, week by week, the Juggernaut story. Yeah, very good point. I think for my money, as far as my hopes for the maybe third arc of this, or maybe it's the final arc, I would kill to just see more Gen X characters. If this is where Gen X winds up, that's perfectly fine with me. I Gen X as led by Wolverine on a mission to deal with AIM, sold. More I mean, Gen X, please. I, I am more obscure Gen X too. For I want you to give me like Gaia. Like yep. let's go, let's yes, go real exactly. deep. Like dig deep for me on this. Let's uh let's age Artie and Leech up finally and be like, guys, your time has come. It's your first big mission. Hey everybody, Nico here again. And so this whole episode has been dedicated to X-Men Unlimited. And one of the interesting things about X-Men Unlimited is the multiple formats that it has maintained. It's been quarterly magazines that are giant sized. It's been monthly titles with multiple stories in it. And it kind of goes to the heart of the fact that the X-Men have always had a love of side stories and backup stories. And so much of that is deeply rooted in the nature of Marvel's time as a company controlled by an another publisher. There was a period of time where Marvel was only allowed to print as many comics as DC Comics permitted them to. In the 1960s, this was a complicated rights situation birthed of lawsuits, and ultimately, Marvel was able to get out from under that, but that meant that for a great amount of time, Marvel was forced to publish a series of magazines that contained multiple stories in an effort to get as many characters out there as they could. That's how you had your Tales to Astonish, your journey into mysteries, etc. And I want to take a look at kind of a brief history of the X-Men and short stories, as well as the X-Men and kind of that ancillary kind of title. You'd be amazed how early on X-Men had backup stories like that. In fact, Tales of Suspense number 49 and Strange Tales number 120. So we're talking way back in like 63, 64-ish, you know? Now, Tales of Suspense number 49 saw the new Iron Man meets the Angel 
There's also Strange Tales number 120, where the Human Torch meets the Iceman. That's kind of a duo team-up that we see Marvel go back to quite a bit throughout the time that, you know, Human Torch and Iceman being like a dichotomy simply because hot and cold was adorable. At some point, we did maybe move a little bit forward, though we still do see those parallels. As we've discussed, there's some interesting parallels between Sunfire and Iceman on their current journeys under Jerry Dugan's trajectory in his various X titles. But it wasn't just that short stories featuring the X-Men appeared outside of the X titles. For fans of the classic run, the original run, 1 through 66, before the title hit some publishing issues and went and paused until Giant Sized restarted things over with number 94, Uncanny X-Men 39 through 57 each featured backup stories. Now, back then the title was just known as The X-Men, right? 39 through 42 featured the origin of Cyclops, which also featured a character named Jack Diamond, who could turn into Living Diamond. Kind of sounds familiar there a little bit, right? X-Men 43 featured a five-page backup story featuring Cyclops' abilities kind of explained. We saw the origin of Iceman in X-Men 44 to 46 before his abilities were explained in 47 and Beast's abilities in 48. 49 through 53 saw the origin of Beast, with 54 through 56 giving us the origin of Angel. Number 57 gives us Marvel Girl's abilities, and it's definitely of note that back in June of 1969 in the pages of X-Men 57, a female writer, Linda Fite, got to write a story about Jean Grey. So over the next couple of years, there were a number of short stories featuring the X-Men a number of places. Storm appeared in the pages of Marvel Team-Up number 100 alongside Black Panther. It's of note that Marvel Team-Up 100's A story features Karma, who would of course go on to become one of the coolest New Mutants ever. This Marvel Team-Up backup story featuring Storm is a pretty significant point that got referenced quite a bit with Storm and Black Panther's wedding. Marvel Treasury Editions 26 and 27 both feature interesting stories starring male X characters. We've got Wolverine and Angel starring in 26 and 27 respectively. These stories frequently get reprinted in omnibus editions. They're really good stories to include because they add a little bit of color and a little bit of light to some characters that otherwise are always sharing the page time. And speaking of color and light, Bizarre Adventures 27 is kind of a bizarre adventure because it's a black and white magazine featuring Jean Grey, Iceman, and Nightcrawler. Now, Bizarre Adventures 26, the month before, features Elektra, and so that's also kind of significant to me, especially if you've been listening lately. I'm really having, you know, an Electrosance on the show, and I'm kind of making it everyone's problem. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. You know, back to Bizarre Adventures 27, this Jean Grey story is a key story. This cover is so memorable for so many people. The Iceman and Nightcrawler stories, we've discussed them both on the show. I think the Iceman story, while certainly visual, is a story that because of the black and white and maybe the old storytelling feels a little lost in reprintings of it. The Nightcrawler story featuring Vanisher is definitely one that we loved to dissect at the time. It was really an interesting experience. So these short stories were kind of part of the bigger picture of the Marvel Universe at the time, which was this idea that these characters were becoming myth and Marvel really did want to experiment and expand and they were working with titles like Marvel Fanfare at this point. Now these weren't strictly backup stories or short stories but rather when Marvel Fanfare launched in like 1982 or so these were meant to be like stories highlighting uh, various parts of the Marvel Universe in a big prestige format. One through four feature the Savage Land and the X-Men and they're by Chris Claremont. It's a pretty well-regarded arc that I think a lot of people remember. From here the series maybe isn't collected 
acted quite as well as you might expect, but there's still a number of stories that I think are worth looking at. Eunice and Blob have a story in the pages of Marvel Fanfare number 7. Logan and Carol team up for Marvel Fanfare number 24. Magneto and the X-Men make an appearance in number 33, as do Rogue and Dazzler. So Marvel Fanfare number 33 is kind of like a doubleheader two for one. Number 40 sees a Warren story and a Storm and Mystique story. Number 50 sees Warren and X-Factor each. Number 50, Warren and X-Factor one story, right? Number 54 sees New Mutants, Warlock and Magic co-star in a story, while numbers 54 and 55 have a Wolverine tale. Number 60 is a really interesting thing to mention. Marvel Fanfare number 60 ties into another series that's sort of famous for the way it presented X-Men backup stories. We've talked about it a bit throughout the series, and we covered all of the original stories way back when, but for many fans, it's been over 250 issues, and we've changed formats. So everyone might not be as familiar with classic X-Men or X-Men Classic, depending on the era. Because digital comics, trades, hardcovers, etc. weren't exactly as readily available as they are now, for many years, comic fans relied on reprints. This has led to a lot of different kind of reprints, or slightly different versions of the same comic. Sometimes an individual page is deleted, sometimes pages are sort of reshuffled and smushed together (laughs) in unique ways. Reprints were such a common thing back in the day that there were frequently reprint magazines, and in order to make a reprint magazine kind of pop off the shelf, you wanted to do something to make it a little bit more special, whether that was new pages, a retouch, updating the dialogue, whatever that was. And Uncanny X-Men was reprinted in this special volume. Chris Claremont was directly involved in updating the language, correcting things that over time canon would change, as well as contributing a new story to a significant number of the issues. Now, Classic X-Men only had new stories for the first 44 issues. After that, they were pretty much just straight reprints, and there was a 45th story originally written for Classic X-Men, and there was a front piece for it and everything, and it wound up not running in Classic X-Men, but it ultimately ran as the 60th story of Marvel Fanfare, which was ultimately Marvel Fanfare's last issue. So it was kind of like a two-for-one final issue situation. That story featured the Carol, Rogue, old-timey villain dynamic. Classic X-Men itself is known for some backup stories, kind of hit or miss, kind of hard to avoid either way, and I think a lot of people remember the classic X-Men stories involving the Dark Phoenix saga that expand on Emma Frost and the Hellfire Club, especially right now, thanks to the popularity of Jerry Dugan's Marauders, one of the dual narratives we mentioned earlier. So it's really interesting to see how Lorda Chantal, a character that was really just in that one backup story, she would go on to appear in an X-Men miniseries, X-Men the Hellfire Club, which was just sort of like a Hellfire Club through the ages kind of miniseries that came out in the late 90s, early 2000s sort of era when, you know, just anything could come out, really. You could just make anything. Not that it's a bad miniseries, but it certainly isn't how we see the Hellfire Club now. So these backup stories also introduced things like the White Hot Room. They gave us perspectives on Gene as the Phoenix and Death. They really expanded the lore of the X-Verse. Now, most specifically in the case of the first issue, that backup story and the amount they cut from Giant Size X-Men number one makes it a completely unrelated issue in so many ways. But from there on out, the changes really are mostly cosmetic and occasionally just in good taste. Chris Claremont was responsible for 26 of the 44 backup stories, with 1 through 17, 19, 21 through 25, and then ultimately returning for 41 through 43. And Nascenti wrote 11. 
11 of the backup stories, with 27 through 34, 38 through 39, and number 44. Joe Duffy contributed two, with numbers 18 and 20, as did Tom Orzakowski with 26 and 40, and, who would go on to become a mainstay on the X titles, Fabian Nicieza with his two at numbers 36 and 37. That leaves Daryl Edelman with just one story at number 35. Now, around this time in the industry, you started to see more and more weekly books pop up, and Marvel threw their hat in the ring with Marvel Comics Presents starting in September of 1988. Marvel Comics Presents starts out with a hallmark of Marvel comic book storytelling, which is a Wolverine event. It was Save the Tiger, with a script by Chris Claremont, pencils by John Buscema, inks by Klaus Janssen, and that's pretty much a solid dream team as any I can think of. This story is really well regarded and is frequently reprinted in larger Wolverine collections. Marvel Comics Presents would run 175 issues from 1988 to 1995. You saw a lot of six-part arcs, eight-part arcs, ten-part arcs, and a good portion of them featured characters that we know. One through ten was Save the Tiger featuring Wolverine. Ten through seventeen saw American Pie featuring Colossus. Seventeen through twenty-four was The Retribution Affair, which featured Cyclops and the Muir Island X-Men like Banshee, Moira, and Callisto versus the Master Mold. Before twenty-five through thirty-one, saw Pharaoh's Legacy featuring Havoc. 31 through 38 is Having a Wild Weekend, which is a pretty interesting Excalibur story. It kind of gets slotted in with the early Chris Claremont stuff, but there's definitely a weird taste that it's like Excalibur versus the Looney Tunes, and it's not a bad story at all, but you can feel where it's not a Claremont story. 38 through 47 is Black Shadow, White Shadow featuring Wolverine. 48 through 50 contains Life's End featuring Wolverine and Spider-Man, and it's almost impossible to think that you're not even a third of the way through the series at 50 issues, especially by today's numbering. 51 through 53 sees The Wildling with Wolverine. 54 through 61 sees On the Road with Wolverine and Hulk. 62 through 63 is Sign of the Beast with Wolverine. Before 64 through 71 is Acts of Vengeance with Wolverine. 71 sees Warlock and the Flesh Tones appear, which, hey, it's Warlock. You know, I didn't realize how many, like, random stories involved Warlock until doing the research for this episode. 72 through 84 is, of course, the very discussed web Weapon X by Barry Windsor Smith. This is a really interesting situation where oftentimes we talk about how, you know, the value of a book, it's either the first issue or the second issue because of the surprisingly lower print run on the second issue. Marvel Comics Presents number 72 is a pretty significant key issue, not just for collectors of Marvel Comics Presents, but collectors of Wolverine. So it's definitely one that catches people's attention. Numbers 82 through 89 see The Price of Freedom, which is a Firestar story, which even sees the inclusion of Emma Frost and Freedom Force. 85 through 92 is Blood Hungry with Wolverine. Also contains Just Friends featuring Beast. 89 is What's Wrong with This Picture featuring Mojo, while 90 through 97 is Servants of the Dead, a Cable and Ghost Rider story. And man, this is the most we have ever talked about Ghost Rider on this fucking show. Like, it's me. I'm doing it. I'm always the one fucking doing it. So it's not like somebody's like got some kind of weird penance gun to my head. 93 through 98 is Wild Frontier featuring Wolverine. Before we jump into to a number of one-off stories featuring Logan, like number 99's Hauntings and number 100's Mutant Dreams. Number 101 to 108 is a Wolverine and Nightcrawler eight-part story called Male Bonding. 109 to 116 includes It's Never Over, featuring Wolverine and Typhoid Mary. 117 to 122 is Claws and Webs with Wolverine and Venom. Yeah, that's pretty 90s as well. 121 is A Faith and Fable featuring Mirage, definitely one I want to check out in the future. 123 through 130 is Clean Slate with Wolverine and Lynx, and I definitely had to 
look up who Lynx was. 131, These Foolish Things is a one-off with Wolverine. Before 132 through 136 includes Brother in Arms with Wolverine. 137 to 142 is Rumble in the Jungle with Wolverine. And 150 to 151, Battle of the Sexes, a reteaming of Wolverine and Typhoid Mary. 152 through 155, you fucking guessed it, Wolverine in I Put a Spell on You. Before 158 and 174 feature two very Excalibur-y stories. 158 is Clandestine, which is an Alan Davis property, which ultimately did cross over with the X-Men. But, you know, I don't know how many people interact with Clandestine outside of their time with X-Men, you know, with the two-part issue in X-Men in the 90s or the five-part miniseries that saw classic Excalibur crossover. You know, it's really a a weird thing that Clandestine is even at the Marvel Universe. Something I keep expecting Alan Davis to be like, oh, no, I took that over to Image and I just never noticed. And then 174 is Crosstime Critters, which is a short Excalibur story. But by that point, I feel like in 1995, you know, it was easy to miss something coming out of Marvel Comics Presents involving Excalibur. The idea of a weekly series when Marvel was amidst the turmoil of bankruptcy, amidst the sort of swarm frenzy of Marvel versus DC, you really weren't in the same world that you were in 1988 when Marvel Comics Presents launched. And if you look at the like other people in these stories, it becomes really clear that that is the case. Marvel Comics Presents number one features Wolverine and a story with Man-Thing and a story with Master of Kung Fu and a story with Silver Surfer. And not that I'm knocking these things in any way, but at a certain point, we get to stories featuring a lot more Ghost Rider, a lot more things called like Artifact of Evil and Doorway to Darkness and Mall Massacre. And you do find yourself seeing the name Vengeance and seeing sort of horror elements of the 90s coming into focus. And again, I'm not knocking those things, but when the book was originally sort of modeled as a slice of the Marvel Universe, you could get a little bit of everything, but it winds up being one sort of specifically dark place over and over again. I can see how maybe that would throw off readers that had been on since the beginning. And speaking of things that had been there pretty much since the beginning, annuals have always been a part of the X-Men's lore and mythos, and one of the things that became increasingly evident was as Chris Claremont had turned the X-Men into a powerful industry and not just a single title, he found himself unable to write every page of that industry. So the X-Men annuals did start seeing more broken up stories featuring shorter tales with more writers, and with X-Men Annual 12 starting in 1988, you did start to see that happen more and more. The Evolutionary War Annual did also see two backup stories, including I Want My X-Men and Demon Knight. Those featured Mojo and the High Evolutionary, respectively. Uncanny X-Men Annual 13 featured three stories, Double Cross with the Serpent Society, Jubilation Day, which is kind of like the big famous Jubilee in the Mall issue, and then Saga of the Serpent Crown, Serpent in the Garden. Saga of the Serpent Crown was a big thing running through the annuals. At this point, Marvel had annual crossovers. I don't mean they regularly had crossovers. I mean they had crossovers that ran only through their annuals. It was a really interesting format. They actually went back to it a number of times. There's another Uncanny X-Men annual. The Escape the Negative Zone event was a really interesting way to try and do this same thing. We're going to talk about some stuff around that time as well. Uncanny annual number 14 was part of the Days of Future Present event, and it had two stories— Days of Future Present Part 4, you must remember this, and The Fundamental Things, a Jubilee, Wolverine, and Rachel story. Uncanny Annual number 15, this is like the first time you're like, oh, well, damn, this is just an anthology book, isn't it? It has Kings of Pain Part 3, which was one annuals event, The Killing Stroke Part 2, 
which was another annuals event. An X-Men origin story, which is like the history of the X-Men retold by Mojo and it's fucking cute as hell. And then Uncanny Annual number 15, which is Wolverine, the Enemy Within. This is a Logan nightmare. Now, I'm going to be really honest. In all of the work that I did for this, I kind of, with the exception of covering the fact that, you know, Marvel Comics presents, which is a really hard thing not to talk about if you're talking about entries into the X-Men's world of short stories and the X-Men's kind of bigger picture narrative. You know, I, I tried to avoid the Wolverine stuff where I could because there's just so much of it. And this story in number 15, Uncanny Annual number 15, there really is a sense of like, this is where stuff's going. This is where Logan's stories are going to become like, rah, rah, my claw pain, my darkness, my hairy, hairy darkness. So it's a thing, right? This is definitely where we moved into that, that idea of Logan on a big scale. Taking a look at like 1991, 1992, we see a big shift because now we go from Uncanny X-Men to X-Men and Uncanny X-Men, right? And in a lot of ways, X-Men kind of becomes the flagship. Uncanny kind of gets a bit of a demotion for a little bit before it kind of doesn't matter for a while. And then it's new X-Men all the way. And then kind of doesn't matter for a little while. And, you know, it bounces back and forth. But with X-Men Annual 1 and Uncanny X-Men Annual 16, you do start to see a little bit more interconnectivity between the annuals playing together. X-Men Annual 1 features Slaves of Destiny, which is Shattershot Part 1. And it also sees X-Men Top 10 Villains, which is Wolverine telling Jubilee all about the X-Men's worst villains. Sure. Uncanny X-Men Annual 16 is the Masters of Inevitability, which is Shattershot Part 2, Angel of Death, and then Roots of His Past. Vaguely, I think the plot of Uncanny X-Men Annual 16, Roots of the Past, is Bishop is sad, he talks to Storm, some kind of tree grows, and Bishop feels better about the future, and I'm here for more Bishop content. It actually does seem like Bishop pops up through a number of these annual event stories. It's almost as if that's where there was room for him, because the early 90s were still really dominated, of course, by Wolverine, Logan. Wow. He's in so many books, I accidentally named him twice. <laughs> Cyclops. <laughs> Gene. You know, the, the mainstays that still dominate the books now. At that point, we switch over to X-Men Annual Number 2 and Uncanny Annual 17. This is a bluer slice of heaven and beast foot forward for X-Men Annual Number 2. Bluer slice of heaven is a pyro legacy virus story. And X-Men Annual Number 17 sees the gift of goodbye featuring the oh-so-90s executioner. And of kings and queens and promises, an upstarts story. The upstarts are something that like vaguely pop up from time to time and every writer that does them always tries to do it a little bit better than kind of the incomplete thought that went into them in the first place. So, you know, there's definitely a sense of like, oh, these upstart stories, it's hit or miss, but they're always kind of fascinating when you come across them. X-Men Annual number three sees two stories, Heart and Soul, which is a Storm and Shinobi Shaw story, followed by A Moment of Silence, a Banshee story. That same year, we got Uncanny X-Men Annual number 18, featuring Trust as a two-way sword, which is a pretty memorable cover and a pretty memorable story at that, featuring Sabretooth, Caliban, Jubilee, and Kitty, followed by Nothing Will Ever Be the Same, yet another Bishop annual backup tale. So, in 1995, the X-Men started numbering their annuals with years instead of counting them, which I think makes a little bit more sense if they're annuals anyway. At that point, they went to longer formats with, you know, sometimes some, like, backup pages, but not really a backup story, and instead, we saw maybe a little bit more focus on X-Men Unlimited instead of the annuals. I feel like annuals have been slowly phasing out of vogue. We saw Marvel try to make annuals feel more important again in 2001 by putting them in Marvel scope and, you know, putting everything on its side and that didn't do a whole lot, but you got a couple of really memorable annuals and I appreciate that. So X-Men Unlimited debuted in 1993 until 
until June 2006. I remember a while back Josh saying that he took a look at X-Men Unlimited Infinity before it really began and was thinking about classic X-Men Unlimited and this ain't it. And like, I don't blame him. He wasn't really wrong. I was so glad to have him in the coverage today talking about Latitude and Longitude, which I think are two spectacular arcs, very much in the spirit of the bigger picture that the X-Men are growing into. And I really couldn't blame him. And I think that's in part because as I looked back into it, X-Men Unlimited maybe didn't have the great era of height that I'd thought it did. Considering X-Men Unlimited came out quarterly, usually in March, June, September, and December from 1993 to 2001, you only really got four issues a year. And I came to realize as I looked through X-Men Unlimited, perhaps my real understanding of where X-Men Unlimited kind of falls off is roughly 1995-1996. Now, while the rest of the history of X-Men Unlimited is really certainly something to talk about, that first maybe 15, though, are memorable for many fans of the 90s. Number one has Sienna Blaze, which is probably her most significant appearance outside of some trading cards. She never really fulfilled the promise of being like such a powerful Omega-level mutant, and I think it might have been the first time people got a little fan-wanky about Omega-level mutant as a term. Number two saw Magneto in a Fatal Attractions kind of tie-in. If I were reprinting Fatal Attractions as a hardcover, I would definitely include this, but I don't know that it overall adds like a whole lot. Number three is a memorable Sabretooth vs. Maverick story. I think it might be memorable because of the really amazing Sienkiewicz cover, with number four being Rogue, Nightcrawler, and Mystique, and finally everything getting out in the open. I think that's one of the most memorable covers, one of the most memorable contents. Number five doesn't add a whole lot, being just kind of like a Shi'ar story, but a number of these get collected in Legion Quest and a number of the other original hardcovers in that time period as things that build on the atmosphere, because I think that's what X-Men Unlimited was really supposed to do at this point. They maybe weren't supposed to be the most breakout stories, like number six is Save Alex from the Savage Land. Number seven is Kandra vs. Storm, and I feel like those are two very memorable characters at all times. So, you know, Kandra is somebody who 90s people love to bring up, and Storm is Storm. Number eight is the legacy virus issue for so many people. And it's funny, because when I was going through X-Men Unlimited and trying to read it way, way, way back in the day, I remember reading number eight and being like, wow, this amazing kid, Chris Bradley, like I'm really into this and I really want to see more come from this and they can't help him deal with his powers. And, you know, the issue had effect on me, I think, because it was like October of 1995. And so I'm like nine years old when I'm reading this. And it was really fascinating to see him pop back up in issue number 15 and then get a series with Maverick and go off in that story direction and then pop up for the next number of years. So like when I thought about it in that regard. X-Men Unlimited really did what it was meant to do. It gave us a sense of that largeness of the Marvel Universe where anything could happen. For a while, things got kind of random. Number nine had Bloodscream and Belasco, and I that was the first one where I'm like, oh, what is this? Number ten had Dark Beast, Replace Beast. So that one kind of acted as a tie-in in a post-AOA world. Number eleven sees Joseph and Rogue, and that actually ties into Avengers 401. Number twelve sees Juggy the first time since his onslaught battle. So number 13 gives us kind of a random story before number 14 is Franklin post onslaught. So okay, the book went from giving us the bigger picture of the Marvel Universe to kind of it would seem serving tie in points. And that's where the book starts to lose not just me, but if you look at the sales figures, it does start to lose people. And from number 16 to roughly number 33, the book kind of limped along before number 34 through 38, five issues came out in one year. Now this is 2002. 
This is the height of new X-Men. Extreme X-Men is going. X-Men is doing its thing. It's a popular title. Everything is kind of turning on all cylinders. And they take a look at trying to move the book to monthly. And they deliver 12 issues in like nine months. It's crazy. Numbers 39 through 50 come out from January to September of 2003. And what's fascinating is a number of them are some of the most memorable issues. Number 41 features one of the only ecstatic short stories. Number 42 has that famous Emma Frost cover and it features Emma Frost and Danny Moonstar in a way that leads into New Mutants Volume 2. And speaking of New Mutants, number 43 features Bill Sienkiewicz and Chris Claremont collaborating on that amazing classic New Mutants story that wound up getting collected in the New Mutants IDW Bill Sienkiewicz artist edition that I love so much. Numbers 49 and 50 both see significant creators contribute full issues. Number 49 sees Bill Willingham, probably best known for Fables, come in and write a full issue of Nightcrawler with a really interesting Josh Middleton cover. The colors on that are crazy. Speaking of crazy covers, the cover to 48 is by Paulo Rivera, big fan. And so then 50, though, sees the creator of Lone Wolf and Cub, Kazuo Kaoki, come in to write a story about Wolverine in Japan. And it's one of those things where, like, what a great creator, what a great voice, even if the issue maybe isn't one that has stuck with people over the years. It's such a terrific thing that we can always point back to and say, check it out, that exists, and sort of what a special thing that represents. Now, ultimately, X-Men Unlimited would return for a short-lived 14-issue second volume that would run from April 2004 to June 2006. This was part of the X-Men Reload. It was a big era for trying to keep the line as a line functioning together. X-Men Unlimited would go on to be collected in two pretty unique volumes in the last couple of years, the new X-Men Companion and the Astonishing X-Men Companion. The new X-Men Companion collects in their entirety numbers 35, 37 through 39, 46 and 47, as well as 49 and 50, plus the first issue of the second volume. It also contains parts of issues 34, 36, 40 to 43, and 48. It's got some unbelievable writers here like Gail Simone, Kare Andrews, Chris Claremont, Greg Rucka, Jamie fucking Delano. That's the first guy to write the ongoing Hellblazer series. And in that same regard, Simon Bisley, the Biz did this. Really cool that those are some of the names in here. The Astonishing X-Men Companion is a bit smaller by comparison, and it contains X-Men Unlimited 2 through 14 of the second volume, plus material from Giant Size X-Men 3 through 4, Mythos X-Men, and Free Comic Book Day 2006. So the Astonishing X-Men Companion actually maybe does operate a little bit more as a companion to the Astonishing X-Men Omnibus than perhaps the new X-Men Companion does as well. Once again, Paulo Rivera's name does pop up in here as he is the amazing artist on Mythos X-Men, definitely one I recommend checking out if you've never checked it out. A couple of other pretty significant names that pop up throughout this volume include, of course, Chris Claremont, Matt Fraction. We have some early X work by Chris Yost on the title. We have some Brian K. Vaughn, as well as amazing art from guys like David Aja, Michael Avon Oming, Rick Leonardi, Scotty Young, who we of course love on this show. After the end of X-Men Unlimited's second volume, there was a lot more focus on sort of random universe short stories and miniseries again. We saw a lot of 
short form minis, whether it was X-Men Divided We Stand, numbers one and two in July of 2008, or follow-ups like X-Men Manifest Destiny 1 through 5 from November 2008 to March 2009, Dark X-Men The Beginning, which featured three 11-page stories each from September to October of 2009, Nation X 1 through 4 from February to May 2010, or To Serve and Protect 1 through 4 from January to April of 2011. There was always kind of some side story going on in the X-World. There were also other like special things like over in Age of Heroes, Captain Britain and MI-13 popped up for a short story in July of 2010, as well as a tie-in to Astonishing X-Men's second run with Ghost Boxes 1 through 2 from December 2008 to January 2009. It's kind of hard to talk about the 2000s, early 2000s, and X-Men and short stories without discussing a title that like it's frustrating to even like try and fucking look up on comic sites sometimes. A plus X, which ran for 18 issues in the wake of AVX from October 2012 to March 2014. It's a title that really sought to serve the needs of an audience, but never quite found the mark. Now, each one of these featured two team-ups of characters, one from the X world and one from the Avengers world, sometimes a few extras. It's interesting because like issue number nine, which saw Doctor Strange and iBoy, iBoy's not even mentioned in the solicit. He's on the cover, but he's just not even in the solicit. Issue number one sees Cable and Captain America and then Wolverine and Hulk teaming up. Issue number two has Black Widow and Rogue before an Iron Man Kitty and Lockheed story. Issue three sees Storm Black Panther before Gambit and Hawkeye. Issue number four has a Beast Spidey story and a Captain America Quentin Choir story, which like, okay, that might just be for me. But then we get to issue five with an Iron Fist dupe story. And I'm like, that's literally just for me. There's a Loki Sinister story in that one as well. Number six sees a Wolverine and Captain Marvel team up plus a Gambit thing team up. A lot of Gambit here. Number seven sees Iron Man, Beast, and Hulk, as well as a Thor and Iceman team up. Maybe that one will come up uh, anytime soon with what's going on for Iceman. Number eight sees a Spider-Woman, Kitty, and Lockheed team up before another Hawkeye, this time with Deadpool. Wow, it's almost, is that the first Deadpool in this? Number nine sees Cap and Wolverine. This is one of the only Wolverines we've had so far. Wolverine showed up in one and six, but this is only his third appearance in nine issues. That's not bad, right? (laughs) Teams up here with Captain America. Then this is the Doctor Strange iBoy team up noted earlier. Number 10 sees Black Widow and Phantom X as well as Scarlet Witch and Domino. That's two team ups that just make a lot of sense. 11 sees Thor and Magic as well as Cyclops and the Superior Spider-Man. Number 12 is Beast and Wonder Man plus Cap and Jubilee. The solicities even like Captain America meets his match in Jubilee. What? Right? Pretty funny. Number 13 through 18 see Jerry Dugan writing a six-part story featuring Captain America and Cyclops while there is a backup featuring Emma Frost and Black Widow in 13, Superior Spidey and Magneto in 14, Doctor Strange and Beast in 15, Psylocke and Spidey in 16, Iron Man and my boy Brew in number 17, and Kitty Pride and the Vision in number 18. At that point, the X-Line did kind of fall into some amount of post-Secret Wars disrepair. There really is that kind of dark decade that's, I don't think it's quite a decade, but it's certainly a dark period of time. And when Hickman reset things with Hoxpox, his X-Men really did, in a lot of ways, serve as an anthology title. His first few issues each told a unique self-contained story, and then things got maybe a little bit crossover heavy. Issues 10 and 11 were part of the Empire crossover. Ten of Swords featured through issues 12 through 15, and even technically the Hellfire Gala was part of the final issue, 21. That means seven out of 21 
issues were crossover related. That's pretty in line with classic X-Men Unlimited. So when one time I believe Josh said that Hickman's X-Men volume really did sort of serve as a parallel to X-Men Unlimited, I do see what he's saying. These X-Men Unlimited Infinity comics are a very different creature than the X-Men Unlimited that we grew up with that is the sort of core identity of the series prior to this. Now, I think especially with the transformative nature of the comics industry, it's really a good thing that Marvel is putting an emphasis on how X-Men Unlimited can survive in the future. I love this kind of fun, spirited look at longer form arcs with numbers 5 through 12 and 13 through 20. I like the shorter, tighter arcs like numbers 1 through 4 and number 22 through 25. I'm a little bit lost on some of what's going on with the Jason Liu downtime arc. I do like knowing that it's going to be number 34. Like, I like knowing that this book has at least another few more weeks commitment. I don't think that they're going to cancel X-Men Unlimited anytime soon. I'm not really concerned that this Infinity comic thing is going away. But until I did this historical research and really looked up how far back short form backups and this idea of what else is going on in the Marvel Universe has been a part of the X-Men line, I don't think I realized just how necessary this book was. And that it's trying to manage to do it all at once, and in many cases, succeeding. I think that's what's got me so excited, that X-Men Unlimited Infinity Comics do feel like they're carrying on the traditions set out in the earliest volumes of the X-Men, as well as the time since. As always, we love making this show for you three times a week, every week. Now, normally we do a Magic Mondays, an X-Men X Wednesdays, and a Marvel Fanfare Fridays. Hey, Marvel Fanfare Fridays has a new meaning now, right? But it's a little bit weird when the X-Men kind of cycle off of their regular schedule and kind of cycle on to like an in-between summer hiatus kind of thing, right? But after this Friday's Marvel Fanfare Friday, I'm pretty sure the ship is back on track. So as always, we love making this show for you. Thank you so much for joining me on this walk through X-Men Unlimited and the nature of X-Men backup stories. I'm Nico Action. You guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Until next time, keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open. It's not an X-Men comic if it's not unlimited. And we'll see ya. Yeah.